Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. In today's episode, we're looking back half a century to 1968, the tumultuous year that saw dramatic escalations, protests, and upheavals across the globe. It was a year that was marked by assassinations and violence and intensification of political repression, but it was also a year of hope as demands to end the Vietnam War and to overturn systematic oppression exploded across the U.S. and Europe, and revolutionary change seemed tantalizingly within reach. One of those demands for change was a call for the liberation of women. In the United States, 1968 saw growing numbers of disaffected women, often veterans of the civil rights and anti-war movements, meeting to discuss the problem of male supremacy. Very quickly, they created an independent women's movement that transformed the political and cultural landscape, a movement dense with tensions and conflicts whose echoes reverberate even today. To discuss that tangled history, I turned to Alice Eccles, professor of history and gender studies at the University of Southern California. Her most recent book, Shortfall, is a timely history of a Depression-era financial scandal, but she's best known as an historian of the long 1960s. Her groundbreaking book, Daring to be Bad, examines the rise and fall of radical feminism from 1967 to 1975. Based on hours of oral histories with pioneering women's liberation activists, it traces the hopes, dreams, contortions, and upheavals that catalyzed and ultimately fractured the movement. She's currently writing an introduction to the book's 30th anniversary edition. I spoke to Alice Eccles via Skype from her home in Los Angeles. Alice, thank you so much for agreeing to, to chat today. It's my pleasure. Um. So I wanted to start, well, I guess starting at the beginning in terms of um, when we think about the 60s um, and particularly the pivotal year of 1968 um, in the United States. I mean, typically we think about assassinations, upheavals. We think about the anti-war movement, the black freedom movement, student movement, the new left, the women's movement is pretty far down on the list, at least in terms of the attention it's gotten maybe outside scholarly circles, even within scholarly circles. Um, so I wondered if you could reflect on that, why you think its, it's, it's history has been minimized or overlooked or sidelined. Well, you know, I'm sitting here amidst a p piles of books because so many books have been written over the past few decades since Daring to be Bad came out, which was, you know, it's now been about 30 years. And really, there weren't very many books that had come out before Daring. There was Sarah Evans' um, Personal Politics, was, which was, uh, you know, the most influential book when it appeared. So, you know, it is kind of a conundrum to me because it seems to me almost as though it doesn't matter how many historians and sociologists and scholars and journalists and movement participants have put out books, some of which are wonderful books, 
about the women's movement, taking it back to the mid-60s, sometimes taking it back, as does Dorothy Sue Cobble in a very canny and smart move, to the, really to the period, to the Cold War years, and looking in particular at the activities of union women. But it doesn't seem to have done very much to change the ways in which the big books about the 60s are written. I find this confounding, distressing. (laughs) And again, you know, it's been this way for a long time, and it doesn't seem to bear any relationship to to the wealth of scholarship that has been produced in the last 30 years. I think that, however, and I don't know if there's a relationship between these two things, I think that there's a way in which whether we're talking about, and and here I'm not talking about conservative commentary, when we're looking at the ways in which most liberal to progressive to radical historians and scholars have written about 1968, have written about the the 60s more generally. The civil rights movement tends to be heroized. The black freedom movement, and in particular black power, um, certainly comes in for some dinks from some people. But given some of what happened in those years, and given some of the positions that some people staked out who were black power activists, it's kind of In some sense, it's kind of surprising that it hasn't come in for more criticism. You look at Cesar Chavez, you look at uh, United Farm Workers. um, Gee, you know, there's a lot of room for criticism there, actually. And there has been more critical commentary written. But nonetheless, when I walk into a classroom, and I teach the 1960s, when I walk into a classroom, it is almost, (laughs) and this didn't used to be true, but it certainly is true now, Students approach the civil rights movement, black power, Chicano movement, farm workers, the Brown Berets, the New Left, the anti-war movement, LGBT, mm, to some extent, they can get critical of that, but most of their criticism is focused on the women's movement. And it's fascinating, because if you think back to 1968, women's liberationists like Ann Kurt, Kate Millett, Ellen Willis, um, Kathy Amatnik, Robin Morgan, they were not calling themselves feminists. Feminism was a dirty word. And it actually took Shirley Firestone more than anybody to turn that around and to say, you know what, we don't really know <laughs> we don't really know very much about feminism in its earlier iterations. And most of what we know has been written by men who aren't necessarily reliable narrators, historians, um, and we need to do our own histories. So when you're looking at, you know, we, you know, Commonly, we talk about second wave feminism, but it didn't. These women didn't begin to define themselves as feminists initially. Instead, they had all the same stereotypes of feminism of the first wave, of first wave feminism that our students have of second wave feminism. And those stereotypes being prudish, being narrow, prudish, n- narrow, unhumorous, racist. 
and bourgeois. And, you know, with all the time on their hands in the world, right? <laughs> they just were like ladies of leisure. And they were liberal. Of course, they had to be liberal. And so it does not matter. You can assign any of these early radical feminist manifestos in which it's it, it, it stated in the first paragraph, we identify with the most oppressed women, right? Their eyes, I don't know what happens. It's like they glaze over. They don't read it. It's like... And they say, I am just shocked by the lack of intersectionality here. The women's liberation movement, and here I, you know, I'm talking about it in fairly broad terms, included more than white middle-class women. Many of the women who were very important in the founding of the women's movement came themselves from backgrounds that were lower middle class. But here's the thing. What they don't understand is that in the 1960s, in particular, in the period of the 1960s, after the beloved community of the civil rights movement begins to unravel and black power takes over, there is a very different logic at work. And it is not a logic of intersectionality. It is a logic of organizing around your own oppression. Anything else is seen as liberal, and liberal is understood to be compromised, tainted, and to be avoided. And so, you know, when they read about, let's say, red stockings or New York radical feminists organizing separately and autonomously and not doing more, in their view, to organize women of color. They, 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 it just reads like straight out, flat out racism. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't ways in which that move towards organizing around your own oppression put forward, not first by women's liberationists, but instead by advocates of black power, who then encourage other radicals, including white radicals, to pick that mantra up. I'm not saying that that wasn't that it, that it didn't let white feminists off the hook to some extent. Part of the problem is women, by virtue of being women, and by virtue of having of that association with mothers, are always going to be the group that is going to be disaffiliated from, especially by daughters. <laughs> so there's a psychological dimension here too. Yeah. So I wonder if we could go back to this moment, the, the, the moment with which Daring to be Bad begins, which is sort of late 1967, moving into 1968, when radical women, growing numbers of radical women who have um, found themselves at odds with the existing forms of radicalism, begin forming themselves into groups to talk about um, female oppression and male supremacy and organizing independently of the larger movement. Could you just sort of talk us through that a little bit, who these women were, the organizations they founded, the critical items on, on the agenda, um, and the kind of pushback they got from, from whomever, whether from the left or from um, other activist women or from the mainstream, the liberal women's movement um, represented by the National Organization for Women. Yes. So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, a lot of histories write it up as though, 
you know, you have Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, then you have the uh, President's Commission, the organization of now with, you know, all of this sort of putting Betty Friedan front and center. And, and clearly she was a very important person, no doubt about that. But there were other things going on in the civil rights movement and in the new left in particular that would help to shape what became the women's liberation movement. First of all, as I've already alluded to, there was the fraying and the falling apart of the beloved community. That left white activists and radicals sort of floundering. What are we going to do? Some people decide, some men go into draft resistance. And there are some women who will follow them as, as kind of allies. But that's still not sort of working for your own, you know, working against your own oppression. It's certainly the case that as much as women radicals who are involved in civil rights and who are involved in the new left and the anti-war movement, as much as they are gaining skills and knowledge and a sense of confidence, they're also very often relegated to the mimeo machines and the kitchens and feel as though when they speak up, they aren't being listened to. And so there is this growing discontent, this growing sense that these movements, which talk a good line about equality and democracy, don't follow through when it comes to women. Now, this is especially keenly felt, I think, by white women, because I do think that in organizations like SNCC and CORE and others, it is the case that there are some black women, and again, there's a variety of opinion here, but there are certainly some black women who feel as though they are treated as though they're capable, they're listened to, they're taken seriously. This tends not to be so much the case of white women. Over time, they begin to take the logic that is sort of being worked up, in particular in SNCC, of feeling as though to really create something like black liberation, we have to do it outside of the earshot of our oppressor. We have to do it outside of the earshot of white people. This is an argument that, that young white particularly white women run with. And of course, this becomes the logic of black power. And it takes time. You know, there are papers that get circulated. There are meetings that happen, some of them contentious. But women gradually, particularly from 66 through 68, begin to meet. These are, for the most part, already radical women. They've already come up through civil rights or they've come up through the anti-war movement, the new left. And keep in mind, there are also women, because we tend to think of Students for a Democratic Society as the, the sort of vanguard new left student group on many college campuses. But if you look at a, if you look at a campus like Kent State, where the murders happened um, several years later, Kent State was a campus where you had, a, um, at first at least, um, uh, the real activists were from Socialist Workers' Party. I do not want to get bogged into <laughs> Socialist Workers' Party, uh, Progressive Labor Party, 
you know, RIM1, RIM2, and all of the ways in which SDS and these other groups begin to fall apart. But they do begin to fall apart. And that also begins to happen in SNCC. And it begins to happen especially as a hope for meeting of the minds between SNCC and the Black Panther Party fall apart, largely because of the efforts of the FBI to make sure that it falls apart. And indeed, let me just digress a second and say something that we don't yet know, we will probably never know, is the extent to which uh, the FBI and COINTELPRO, that program played a role in the falling apart of 60s radical movements, including the women's movement. So just bracket that. Okay, we get to 67. There's more and more women are coming together and meeting in small groups And they're usually meeting often in what comes to be called consciousness raising groups in which the point is to to come to understand the ways in which the world that, that you thought you understood is a world that's really in many ways been stacked against you and you haven't been able to see it clearly. You need to have your consciousness raised because you suffer from some sort of false consciousness. This is an idea that has a, has, has a definite downside, but it's not yet obvious that it, it does. And this, this experience of coming together in small groups, sharing personal experiences, talking about how, who does the housework? Who has the orgasms, right? Who gets to, who gets to do the fun stuff? That proves enormously energizing. And from those groups, people begin to plan bigger actions and they begin to meet in large groups and in 68 the culmination of this is the protest at the 1968 Miss America convention in um in Atlantic City Th- that is that's when women's liberation hits the national scene that's when your average american begins to understand oh <laughs> there's another movement out there i didn't know about yeah, and and the name women's liberation really catches on in in 1968 as well, isn't that? Yeah, it does. It does, and because at this point, you know, now is now is really begun as as not as now does not initially intend to recruit women to its ranks. The National Organization for Women. Yeah, it's it's meant to be a rather elite group of of women. Uh, policymakers, lawyers, you know, pr- you know, professional women who are going to try to push the agenda kind of behind the scenes. And it's what that does, in a sense, is leave a lot of room available for all varieties of, of women's liberationists. And believe me, th- you know, they run the gamut, um, but it leaves them a good deal of room to organize. And so you find, let's say, women who eventually will come to see themselves as socialist feminists and they'll form the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, an amazing panoply of activities, and one of which includes an abortion referral service that eventually becomes a service whereby women train themselves to perform abortions and perform abortions while abortion is still illegal. You find all kinds of activities happening, but women are coming together and they are forming groups. And whether it's in Berkeley or New York or or Washington, D.C., Ann Arbor, Michigan, Raleigh, Durham, 
And they differ a great deal. Some of these groups really believe that women should be a kind of auxiliary to the left, that women's liberation is important, but that women's liberation will be achieved when the left is able to achieve power. Um, And then there are others who adamantly argue that although women's liberation is left-wing, that it is, in fact, um, the true left position, and that the so-called new left has a lot of work to do to get in line. Um, There are African-American women who are involved. There are, but this is an interesting thing. African-American women, um, Chicanas, Asian-American women, but they tend to organize much more closely with their brother groups and they, they don't espouse for, I think, reasons that are fairly obvious, um, because racial solidarity matters a great deal, they don't espouse any kind of feminist separatism, um, which is much more typical of some white groups. But they are organizing, and the fact that they're organizing, but sort of organizing out of view, has meant that for a long time, scholars and historians were slow to take them on board, and I would count myself amongst them. I think Benita Roth's book, Separate Roads to Feminism, was um, one of many important books that has shed light on the fact that that organizing went happened. It's not that it didn't happen. It's not that it didn't happen, but it didn't happen um, usually very often alongside white women, although even then, there are exceptions. You can look at um, the primary women's liberation group in D.C. when it became really devoted to, um, to reproductive rights, which required a move away, strictly speaking, from abortion rights to also an understanding of the perniciousness of sterilization abuse. So um, when they began to, uh, to really take that seriously, they seriously sought and succeeded in getting on board black women in particular, to the point where black women pretty much ran that project. Um, so, you know, we, you know, we hear a lot about the white middle-class women's movement, but in the early days of now even, not the earliest days, but by the time when we're looking at the late 60s and early 70s, some of the work that was being done around affirmative action was being done across, across racial lines, um, across class lines, interracial organizing happening among um, working class women and women cross-racially that flies in the face of this notion that affirmative action was something that was only taken advantage of in privileged ways by Uh, by white women. So there's a lot of interesting new work being done, which, you know, certainly challenges some of what I write about in Daring to be Bad and what a lot of the earlier histories write about. You know, it's more mixed up, those sort of lines, you know, the liberal, the radical, the socialist, and sometimes the cultural feminist, that might describe certain places for 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 a certain discrete period of time, but even then, it's probably more mixed up than that. It it gave you a good kind of 
taxonomy that could be useful, but it certainly is something that um, <laughs> further work has shown uh, needs much more complicating. So you are now currently writing an introduction for the 30th anniversary reissue of Daring to be Bad next year. Um, and I wonder, you know, writing that at this particular moment in U.S. history, um, at the time of the Me Too movement in the midst of that, um, but also in the midst of uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, and a whole lot of, um, from a lot of different angles, resurgence of debates about intersectionality, about um, women's agency, um, about sexuality and victimization. How do you look back on the history that you chronicled in Daring to be Bad? What, what's uppermost in your mind? Well... I have always thought, and I will always maintain, and this is one thing that I, I really have not moved away from. Um, many people thought that I wrote only as a partisan of radical feminism um, in Daring to be Bad, because I said at some point, these are the women that I admired, which is true. I certainly admired them, but um, I never wanted to let them off the hook. And I do think that um, it was, it was inevitable. It, and it, and it was inevitable, not only in the women's movement, but in the new left and in other sixties movements that the slogan, the personal was the political would take us down a dangerous path. And it became impossible to disaggregate the personal is political from the political is personal. And it, it became weaponized. And when I say it became weaponized, I mean that it became the case that if you didn't look a certain way, if you didn't dress a certain way, if your hair wasn't a certain length, if you didn't fuck a certain way, if you didn't fuck the right people, the right gender, then you could end up on the wrong side of the arbiters of political correctness. And political correctness was, of course, a term, it's a term that gets bandied about a lot, of course, now by the right, but it was our term. It was a left-wing term that we used to make fun of ourselves. I don't want to say that there isn't a connection between the personals and the political, but I want to maintain that there should be something of a firewall there so that how people live is the choices they make, you know, the neighborhoods they live in, the, the friendships that they have, that you don't go after people on that basis. You, what you're looking for instead is, are these people going to be down there on the barricades with, with me? Not something like, you know, what kind of shoes are they wearing? And, and I know that might sound trivial, but I, I do think that this continues. I mean, it's shocking to me, but it continues to be an issue. I see it with the students. 
The other thing that I would say is, and here I, I'm not really pointing a finger. I mean, daring to be bad, it's meant to show people what was truly radical about radical feminism, which was the personalist political. It was, here is this whole area of life that we need to dissect and understand in order to mobilize people politically. But the point wasn't shaming. The point wasn't to make people feel bad about it. The point wasn't to make people feel as though they had false consciousness, which quickly crept in. The point was to energize people. So consciousness raising was never about just making yourself feel better. It was, I mean, it might make you feel better, it should make you feel better, but it, eventually, but it was not about that. It was about raising consciousness, getting you to understand that there were structures of power that, that were obscure, that were hard to see. And it really took examining them with other people together. So that collectivism was really, really important. And if you go back and you read a lot of what the veterans say, they will say that. I stress it in Darren. At the same time, a lot of radical feminism and women's liberation was about, um, you know, turning your nose up at liberal reform. Again, not to say that radicals and liberals didn't sometimes work together, and they did, but it is nonetheless true that there was a lot of snottiness on the part of radical feminists, myself included, who, because I, I was a radical feminist, even though by the time I wrote Daring, I was somewhere between between those, those various isms. But I do think that women's liberationists tended to also encourage an attitude of do it yourself. We're, you know, we're going to do it ourselves. I mean, often together with other people, but you know, don't go to the doctor. Don't make, you know, forget making demands on the medical profession. You know, we'll go to our feminist women's health centers. We'll learn how to do um, self-exams. It really was all about doing it yourself, or at least wasn't all about. That was an important dimension of it. And what we couldn't see at the time was that, because you can't see these things at the time, we were living at a moment in which it felt like the patriarchy, right? You know, nobody was encouraging us to do it ourselves. But in point of fact, there's a way in which we help to lay the groundwork for neoliberalism, for people being on their own. I think we were somewhat slow to see how things were shaping up. Many thanks to Alice Eccles for taking part in our conversation. Her book, Daring to be Bad, is published by the University of Minnesota Press. Its 30th anniversary edition will be out next year. Thank you to the staff of the Ohio State University Digital Union, where I recorded this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.